is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. That's on page 954 of your Blue Bible. First Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. In would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's join together, asking for God's help. Father, this passage reveals a weakness that is hard for us to consider, and we need uh, your supernatural grace right now to hear what you would say, to hear your living voice right now through the word that has inspired and endured for thousands of years. Would you use it now in our midst? And we trust that you'll do that. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the character types that Shakespeare develops in his plays is uh, might be called the wise fool. It's the person that appears uh, who is thought to be least likely to find the truth, but finds the truth. If you're familiar with, for instance, Much Ado About Nothing, the character of Dogberry, who stumbles upon the plot against Claudio and Hero and exposes everything. But, of course, throughout the whole play, he's... Uh, seen as an ass, a fool to everybody. And maybe the wise fool is a good way to understand how Paul sees himself and what he's inviting the Corinthians to be and really what he's putting before you and I this evening. What does that mean, to be a wise fool? Someone who appears to be foolish to all, but in the end really has been wise and laid hold of the truth. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that Paul has been developing this theme from the very beginning. He's been taking these terms and turning them on their heads about wisdom and foolishness, saying that actually the message of Jesus Christ and this gospel of Christianity actually appears on the surface to be foolishness. It seems extreme. Does God really have to go to these lengths to come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and humiliate himself and sacrifice himself for our moral failings. Come on! Is it really that bad? 
And of course, against the backdrop of that is, is this belief that, well, aren't we just a little bit wise, a little bit good, a little bit strong enough to deliver ourselves? And you would see then how the Christian gospel really rams into, uh, runs into, collides with this other view. <laughs> Meaning this, if you're wanting to look good in the eyes of the culture, if you want to look wise in the eyes of the culture, if you really do believe things aren't that bad, there's no way in the world that you would be a wise fool, that you would embrace this gospel uh, that Jesus preached. But if you do, if you would, it would speak to something. It would probably say that you had an inner confidence, an inner, a secret joy, a secret love that enabled you to assume that role and stay with it. And maybe at that point we could raise up another uh, you know, uh, sort of fool, the classic fool in love, right? The person that has been so wowed that one person has given them their affection that they don't mind looking foolish. They'll dance, they'll sing, they'll endure the contempt and scorn of other people. Could you imagine God being that person for you? That you would understand God in such a way that it would cause you to look like a fool in love, to endure the contempt of other people. Now, if that were to happen, it would mean the way that God is portrayed in our culture, we'd have to, we'd have, to have a different sort of God. What I mean by that is the idea of a God that is distant or sort of generic wouldn't quite work because fools in love don't just fall in love with people. You know, there's this person that's caused you to go head over heels. So it would have to be someone that has really touched you, someone that you can hone in on. And it would actually have to be a person that's different than you, right? You wouldn't just, uh, this is another view of God we're given where God is just really a heavenly reflection of our own opinions coming around the table where we're all sort of in this process of looking at the world's religions, distilling what we find there and saying, I think this is what God is. Well, that's not going to work either because you're going to, it's narcissism. You just end up loving yourself in the end. And I don't know about you, but, well, well, this is where it's sort of funny because we, we do think we're, we're great dates. Uh, in another way, uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to go down that that place because it gets us off track and... Uh, anyway, but in the Bible, what do you find? You find a God that is both personal and a God that is beyond us. Someone that if you fell in love with, if you found or fell in love with, maybe would cause you to be a fool. Now, there's an interesting little example of this in uh, that Amazing Grace film that we screened a couple weeks ago where Wilberforce is in his garden, right? Proper Englishman is sitting with his legs crossed on the wet ground and his butler comes in on him. And obviously he's embarrassed and says, you know, I, I think I've found God or God has found me. And it's, it's causing him to act like a fool in the eyes of other people. God's wise fool, if you assume that role, it's always going to introduce a tension. You enter into a tension between resisting looking good in the eyes of the culture and as well a willingness to endure contempt and scorn, possibly. That's part of what Paul is talking about here. And let's just be honest. Who of, who of us have come to this city with a life ambition of looking foolish and enduring scorn and contempt? That probably wasn't the primary reason when you were talking to your friends, why are you moving to Washington? Well, really, this is my hope, that I might endure much contempt and look like a fool in the eyes of the entire city. You know, I can't give you my blessing. Not many of us would want to go there. 
This is what we share in common with the Corinthians. They were battling the same thing that you and I battle. And that is, what does it look like to try to understand this and live in a culture? And Paul thinks it's pretty serious because at this point, you notice, he heightens his conversation with some sarcasm, with some some irony. And and I want to say something about Paul's sarcasm here because we live in a very cynical age. Uh, An age is so cynical, even our children are cynical. That's that's such a, a sad thing. Even our young children are cynical. And, of course, we live in a town that tends to be very cynical when you read the publications. But there's a difference between cynicism and what we'd say satire, irony, sarcasm. Uh, a writer of mine has put it this a writer, a friend of mine has put it this way. He said, cynicism exposes for the, for the purpose of mocking and really condemning, where sarcasm and irony... They actually have the purpose, satire, of exposing with the hope of redeeming and changing. Showing a certain light on something whereby there might be change. We would say, look at the foolishness of this. There needs to be change. Paul is actually using the latter rather than the former. And you can see it in verse 14 here because he says, I'm not saying these things to bring shame on you and condemnation. But rather, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians this way because he wants them not to climb out of the role of the wise fool. And there's always two temptations that pull us out of that role of a wise fool. And that is the temptation of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction. A self-made person and a person that's arrived. So Paul basically now at this point is beginning to engage them in that. That's what I want to put before us. Those two things. How do we deal with the delusion of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction? And what does it have to do with this idea of God's grace and God's wisdom? First, self-sufficiency, or the idea of being a self-made person. Now, in Corinth, there was a certain spirit that saturated the city, and we've been talking about that. It was a spirit of ambition. Corinth was, was a city that was basically on the ash heap. It was raised from the ash heap. Julius Caesar had raised it from the ash heap. The Romans had actually sacked the city, but Caesar one day said, wait a second, there's, there's too much commercial potential here. We need to get Corinth back and running. Because it was, as the ancients would say, it was a master of two harbors. You had a, you had a straight line to Asia as well as Italy. So they got it up and running. They did something sort of ingenious. They built a paved road right through the center of it so merchants wouldn't have to make a treacherous trip around the bottom for months during the wintertime especially was very dangerous. Paul had experienced that. Instead, they could take their boats out wheel right across the city. And voila, all of a sudden, there is this commercial prosperity. People are flocking from all over the place. And we know this because there's coins from all over the world there. And people are beginning to make their way. They're coming there with hopes that they might make it up the ladder, that they might find a new station in life. They're coming there to work hard, to network, to get their names out. Obviously, this is ringing true with you because this could be America, right? This is, this is how America works. And this dynamic was in such full force that one scholar had said, in Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origin syndrome. A self-made person ex- escapes humble origin syndrome, and if I hadn't told you they were talking about Corinth, you would say, well, we're talking about America, because that is part of the American story, the American narrative. We love that story. Uh, A month or so ago, I was listening to uh, 
an interview or a comment about J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, as if I needed to say that. Most people know. And it said, it's so interesting, she finished her last novel in a five-star hotel that was just down the road from the cafe that she wrote her first novel in. Things have changed. I I think she has more money now just under the queen. And uh, we love to hear those stories of someone going from nothing to something. And there's stories like that in the Bible, actually, the story of David, the story of Jesus, but it's never purely for worldly wealth or status. The Corinthians, right, this Corinthian community here, Paul plants the church in the midst of this city I've just described, and as most of the people in the city were converts, they had been living the Corinthian story, just like you and I have been living the American story. And uh, and maybe if you're not from America, you've come here partly because that that story uh, attracted you in some way. That's the story. We share that in common. But Paul begins to preach about Jesus Christ in this religiously diverse city, and it captivates people. They're gripped with this idea of grace. They're gripped with this idea of God coming to the earth in flesh. And they would have known that the gospel and the cross, at its very heart, called for them to lay down self-sufficiency. It's just part of it, because this is the very thing that actually distinguishes the Christian faith from other belief systems, whether they be religious or non-religious belief systems. It was the case in Paul's day. It's the case in our day. Other belief systems would say they would commend us to our own wisdom and goodness as our best hope. And so, what does that imply? It means that you have to cultivate self-sufficiency and protect it at all costs. If that's your hope, you're certainly not going to be able to give it up. And the religious version of that would be, we see often, is this idea that I've got to have enough self-sufficiency to meet God halfway. Because that's what he requires of me. I need to have something to bring to the table in exchange for God's acceptance, his forgiveness, and his blessing. And it seems like the morally responsible thing to do, right? We're morally responsible people. We need to do our part. And Christianity would agree with that. It would say, yes, we're morally responsible people. But actually, the first act that morally responsible people do is they say, I can't save myself. But I can't live up to your standards of love and justice. I need to own up to that first and foremost. And they, they understand at that point that uh, they, they lack the moral credibility to play swaps with God, which is what our belief systems are really doing. This idea of take my record of sincerity and uh, take my love for my fellow man and let's play swaps here. You you give me what I need and you give me my blessing. But instead, the Christian message does a little turn. It does a little twist where all of a sudden God says, no, I got a different game of swaps. Let's do this. We'll swap my son's righteousness and perfect moral life. My son will swap that for your sin. And what do you say? I won't treat you like you deserve, but instead I'll treat you like he deserves. So we'll play swaps with the credibility of Jesus, the son of God. And therefore, I can bless you, and I can give you favor, and I can give you this standing. This was what the Christian gospel was teaching. It's what it's teaching today. There's nothing else like it. Nowhere else do you have God saying, let me give up everything. Let's play swaps. Let's really do it. I'll give up everything for you. I'll cross the line so that I can have you. This is the difference. 
This is this foolishness of the gospel. And that means at some point you have to hear the words of Jesus, that he speaks to a very self-sufficient people, just like us, where he says, I know you think you're, you're rich, but you're actually pitiful and poor, and you're naked and you're tattered. I wish, I counsel you to buy gold so that you could clothe yourself. At some point you have to have that moment. And I, I commend you to that moment. I don't know if you've had that moment. You may have grown up in the church all your life and said, you know, I, I don't know if I've really had that moment. Where I've stared at God and fallen for him because of that. And, uh, you know, I'd ask you to think about that this week. But for many of us that have experienced that moment, you know, it's not like it's just a one-time thing. Because there's this impulse in you and I to constantly be climbing out of the role of the wise fool. (laughs) To turn back to the self-sufficiency as our best hope. And the Corinthians were dealing with this. They were intoxicated on the wine of the culture, just like you and I are intoxicated on the wine of this city and the wine of that narrative that would say, yeah, we can do that. We can pull ourselves up. And instead of being profoundly grateful and humble, they were self-sufficient and full of themselves. And Paul says something very blunt to them in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? He says, who are you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast like you didn't? He just nails us at that point, doesn't he? This is our lives all the time. This is what we're trying to do. We constantly want to give people the impression that I didn't get much, but look at everything that I did. Self-sufficiency loves to pretend I didn't have much to start with. The way it tells the story is other people, and God especially, are footnotes. Not really mentioned, but rather personal achievement tends to be the main narrative of the story. And the moral of the story is this. Well, in the end, I really knew what I was doing. In the end, that's it. Now, we know better not to say that. But when other people sort of compliment us and cast us in that story in that light, we just sort of smile and let them do it. But instead, the wise fool, when they recount their story of success... When they recount the story of their life, their eyes begin to well up with tears. And they feel this great humility and gratitude for what God has done in their heart. They find that, and the moral of the story is, look what God did with my foolishness. I really am a foolish person, and look what God has done with my life and my relationships in light of this. There's this deep feeling of gratitude that they have. And that is a hard thing to do, my friends, in the culture that we live in, to cultivate that sort of idea. And and even in this nation, you know, our nation makes references to the blessings of God, but oftentimes the self-congratulatory tone dampens it so much that this idea of profound gratitude and humility doesn't come through. And I think it often appears that way to the world as well. But in the end, I hope you see it really gets to the heart of the first question we brought up, and that is the wise fool is different than other people because in the end, she believes, he believes, that they were just flat out saved, that they were rescued. And that triggers a mechanism of thanksgiving because all of a sudden you have become not a performer. You haven't become a performer. You have become a receiver, a recipient in life. And that posture of a recipient then begins to sensitize you in all different ways. That fundamental idea that God has given to me everything that I didn't have. 
And he gave it to me lavishly. All of a sudden, it triggers this sort of sensitivity. So when you walk outside on a day like this that warms your heart, and you see people sort of just enjoying the city, and it feels like the first spring day, you feel like you need to say thank you to someone. You feel like you need to say thank you to God. Thanksgiving becomes a regular part of your life. The Corinthians are in danger of losing that, of seeing themselves as self-sufficient. The second thing that Paul is trying to get at here is the delusion of being self-satisfied or having arrived. And uh, this is where he has his strongest words. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You hear Paul's sarcasm there. The Corinthians felt like they had arrived as they were measuring themselves against the city. They were pleased with themselves. They said, you know, I really am I'm doing pretty well. I came here at this rung in the ladder and I've worked my way up here. They were having what I call is a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the great Babylonian king. He's talked about in the book of Daniel. And he's the one that goes out on his porch one day and he surveys the city and he says, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for, for the glory of my majesty? For the glory of my majesty. And all of us have these Nebuchadnezzar moments. When things are going well, that is. We actually live between the poles of you know feeling like utter failures because we can't say that word. But when we do close in and grab it, it's this, you know, standing back going, look at this. I've come to a world-class city, and people actually know who I am here. Or, look at me. I occupy a place of power, and perhaps the most powerful government in the world. Perhaps. Or, look at me. I can navigate the metro, unlike these tourists. Look at the things that I can do. It's the mind of a self-satisfied person. You know, it is a Nebuchadnezzar moment where instead of, look at what God has done for me, where, you know, again, your eyes are welling up, you're surveying your life and going, look at the grace of God to me, it is instead, look what I've done for the glory of my majesty. And it it really goes down to uh, the basis for that mindset of self-satisfaction and having arrived is always personal achievement. And I, and I hinted at this last week, that the wise fool can never think about personal achievement divorced from two words, stewardship and faithfulness. The wise fool cannot understand their achievements apart from this idea of gratitude and service to God. And that leads him to ask different questions. Dan Allender, in his book on leadership, Leading with a Limp, which I've mentioned before, uh, he says this. Success teaches us to not trust the applause of others. I'll say that again. Success teaches us not to trust the applause of others. When contempt from others or applause no longer moves your heart to hide or to strive, then you are ready to ask the question, what will please you, God? You understand what he's saying there. When you're no longer being driven by the applause of people or this fear that I need to strive and get it, that is the time you're actually in a position to say, what will please you, God? You've moved then into the, the realm of stewardship and faithfulness instead of just mere personal achievement. How have you understood your life? As you think, you know, as you re- go home and read over your resume, and as you read over your resume, 
Is it the narrative of your personal achievement in your mind? Or is it the narrative of, look what God has done for me, because he has done a lot on your behalf. And along with this mindset of self-satisfaction comes uh, the belief that we're now in a position to give judgment and give opinion. And this was happening with the Corinthians. They, they had this idea that they had arrived, and now they were in the position to give advice and opinions. I, you know, we do this. When you feel like you've been a success, when you've finally gotten there, you feel a little bit freer over a cup of coffee or a beer to say, let me give you my opinion. And other people get quiet because, of course, you've made it. And now it's time to listen to you. And that's what lies behind part of the Corinthians judging Paul the way they are. Saying, you know, I'm not so sure about you, Paul. You don't really seem to match up with Corinth here. I'm not so sure about the way you speak, the way you act. And we'll get in a second to his list. So Paul actually does something very different than I would do, or maybe you would do. Instead of sort of pulling out his credentials, his apostolic card, and saying, listen, let me just remind you. (laughs) Let me just remind you for a moment that I'm an apostle. That Jesus appeared to me supernaturally, and I know you've seen this, I actually have supernatural power. I can do things that you can't do. He doesn't do that, does he? He meets their exaggerated self-importance with this litany of the lowliness of his calling. And he says he doesn't do it to shame them. What is Paul doing? He says to them, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Roman conquerors, military conquerors, when they came into town, they had a long line of their spoils, and at the very back were the captives that were doomed to go in the gladiator ring and to be killed. And Paul is saying, It seems as if the apostles have that role here that we're actually going to be led into the ring and you Corinthians have the best seats in the house and you're either going to applaud or say boo. It seems as if this is the role that God has given to us. That we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. And it's hard to see what Paul is saying here. Is he saying in a sense, you know, we've actually, we've actually laid down our lives and it's been our pleasure to do so. That you might be lifted up. Or is it Paul saying, you know, isn't this ironic? You're sort of living with both feet, you know, one in Corinth and one in the kingdom of God, so you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have the glory of both worlds. And I, friends, this is something, we, we believe that we can have it all. We really believe that lie that we can have it all. And we can have it all. Someone can't follow Jesus and have it all. You'll get more than all, but you can't have what you think you want. Something has to go. And then he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Often we don't, we don't know where our next meal is coming from. Our clothes are worn out, but not in a cool sort of grungy style way. We just look, you know, embarrassing to people. We look very uh, uncool to people. We're roughly treated. We're knocked about. Uh, Paul talks about his suffering in many ways, how he had hurt. We're scorned for the common labor we do to support the ministry. We are verbally abused, but we speak blessing. When we're vilified, we speak gently. And then he says, we have become like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Basically, what he says in the Greek is, we're like the scrapings from a dirty pot, like the scrapings from the bottom of a shoe. 
This seems to be the role that God has put us in. We are the fool of fools. We're the lowest of the lowest. These are God's great leaders, the apostles of the church. Now, it raises this question in my mind. Why in the world would Paul do that? Why in the world would any of the apostles really do that? They're just like you and me. Why would they subject themselves to that? Paul had a good career going, if you know anything about him. And he actually had arrived. In every sense of the word, Paul had arrived. What would make him give that up? Well, he had understood that Jesus had gone through even more for him. When you read that list, it's hard to not think about the Old Testament passage that we had read. And, you know, Duke and I didn't plan that. I actually had planned to mention it. He had it in there. The reading out of Isaiah 53. Do you hear the similarities between what Paul is describing as the the destiny of a wise fool and what Jesus went through? Listen to this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But here's the catch. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Is that something that means something to you? Personally, have you embraced that and known that? If you have, you have a glimpse into why Paul said, I'll actually give it all up. You find when Paul is teaching theology and talking to the churches, he often breaks out in personal moments of just exclamation where he says, I really can't believe that the Son of God did this for me. I had a good career and I had arrived, but I threw it all away because something has arrested me. That Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to give up the glory and esteem of his city and of his culture. And that the Son of God gave up the son that he was so proud of that he might become a public curse in that city and then cast out of that city. This is what theologians talk about, the state of humiliation. They say that Jesus, you know, dwelt in two states, the state of exaltation and the state of humiliation. Actually, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, you'll see them both described. That he took the lowest place, and because he was faithful, God exalted him to the highest place. Far above all rule, dominion, power, and authority, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. See how high that is. This is what God has done for the son that he loved. In historic confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in its larger catechism said that the humiliation, the state of humiliation involved this, that he was willing to undergo for our sakes, he emptied himself of his glory. He was betrayed, forsaken, scorned and rejected, came under the law and bore the weight of God's wrath, and all this voluntarily and with great joy because of the joy set before him, because he had to have you and because of his delight in you. Now, the apostles' humiliation wasn't toward the same end of Jesus. They didn't atone, but 
It was for the purpose that the Corinthians might get before Jesus. This is why Paul and the Corinthians were doing this. Elsewhere, when he's talking to the Ephesians, he says, I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you because it's for your glory. Paul was delighted that it was actually be his glory. I don't think Paul is whining when he's going through this list here. I think actually he's just becoming very vulnerable. He's opening his heart up to the Corinthians and saying, you know, this is my world. And more so, I, I feel like you're completely missing the gift that has been given to you through Jesus Christ that's being modeled before you. The wise fool in some ways is beginning to grasp that that the humiliation of Jesus doesn't call guilt, cause guilt, but it's precious. It becomes precious. So maybe knowing God that way would cause you to be foolish. And I, I would ask you, to what lengths would you go? To what lengths would God's grace cause you to go to be foolish for him, this fool in love? To what lengths would you be willing to undergo scorn so that someone might know grace, that someone might come before Jesus? This is part of what Paul delighted in. But lastly, Paul delighted and saw something. Why would Paul go through this? Because he had some understanding that he was deferring temporary glory for eternal glory, something that was greater. Uh, The Corinthians, whenever you try to arrive, think about the word. Whenever you hope to arrive, in your mindset is, I need to get set up here because I'm here. And the Corinthians, in some sense, were doing that. They were getting themselves set up. They believed they had arrived because, in the end, they believed, well, this is it. Personal peace and affluence became that. People that don't believe in heaven and a new heaven and new earth will always set up shop here. And all of us are in this tussle of dealing with that. And the rich fool was the one, another fool, that Jesus talked about, who, you know, built bigger and bigger barns. And then finally Jesus said, or rather through the parable, you fool, didn't you understand your very soul would be required of you tonight? So there was this uh, short-sighted vision of a glory that only existed in this world, in this culture. Or I think the other reason we might do that, where we feel a necessity to get set up and arrive here, is our view of God and his love for us and our experience of him is so thin, it's hard for us to uh, handle the idea of suffering. To actually think, I can give up something. I, I, I don't know if you have this experience when you give up something, when you try to give up something, or maybe you miss out on something. Now, let's talk, let's talk about something really small. You know, you miss out on a concert you want to go to. You miss out on a trip some friends want you to go to. You can't have something that you want. And any time you experience that, it feels a little bit like a death, doesn't it? And immediately we have this thing where I have to go eat something. I need to go buy something. I need to go have someone. You know, I feel like I'm dying and I need something. I think it's that same feeling that drives us to say, I need to get set up and I need to have it all now. But when someone that has actually encountered God, there's this ability to say, I think I, can, I think I can actually exist. I think I can put myself off. The way Paul said it was, I've been in plenty and in want, and I've learned the secret of contentment. And it all centered around this idea of Jesus and understanding the gospel. Wise fools in the end understand that this life is just the appetizer. And they're looking ahead to a future glory. And they're looking ahead to a glory that will come from the lips of God instead of the voice of the culture. And maybe get to the point where you start to get the accolades of the culture and the praise of the culture, but it just doesn't do it anymore for you. And you feel like, you know, this isn't, this is sort of running through the treadmill, you're going through the loops, and it's just not doing it anymore. 
And maybe it's more like that hymn we sing here sometimes on Jordan, Stormy Banks, where it says, uh, when, when, when shall I see that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in his bosom rest? When the great glory is actually the smile, it's a person that you're shooting for at the end. The wise fool believes that there's glory to be had beyond this life. And maybe willing to undergo scorn uh, and to become uh, the bottom of someone's shoe because they think, uh, God's going to give me a foretaste of that now. I couldn't help, as I was uh, you know, reading this week, going to... Uh, it sounds like I spend my days just reading Shakespeare all the time. I don't, okay? Just on one, this day, I was thinking about Shakespeare. But Henry V, uh, if you're familiar with that, uh, the St. Crispin speech, where the English are about ready to, headed to battle the French, and they have so few people, and one of the cousins, one of Harry's cousins, says, I, you know, they have so many, and, and he launches into this incredible speech about, you know, I wouldn't wish for one more person, because he saw this glory being so noble. This is such a glorious thing. We wouldn't want to share it with anybody. Those of you that will talk about this day, those of us that will die here, you know, we few, we happy few. Well, maybe Paul had a sense of that. Maybe we could have a sense of that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be wise fools, to know you so well that we could uh, come into that role. In Jesus' name, amen.